Welcome to Labor Solidarity, which is an Empathy Media Lab production, highlighting the work of labor leaders and discussing historic struggles and the importance of organizing to new audiences with the goal of building international labor solidarity. Today, I'm speaking with Barbara Ellen Smith, who is the author and editor of four books and numerous articles about labor, women, and social movements in Appalachia and the South, including Digging Our Own Graves, Coal Miners, and the Struggle Over Black Lung Disease. She lives in Charleston, West Virginia, and is a professor emerita at Virginia Tech. Barbara is also a board member of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and chair of the Museum Fundraising Committee. We'll be discussing the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum today. That is a site of a historic battle which erupted in May of 1920, setting into motion a chain of events that led to the largest armed uprising in the United States since our Civil War and offers the largest exhibition of Mine Wars history anywhere in the United States. Barbara, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Evan. It's great to be here. So could you begin by introducing yourself and how you got into the labor movement? Sure. So I was about 19 years old when I moved to Charleston, West Virginia to work for the Black Lung Association. And that was really the beginning of my relationship to labor issues in coal. Uh, and it really became kind of a lifelong um, interest and uh, commitment. So uh, I, as you mentioned, I um, became a professor eventually and uh, wrote and taught a lot about uh, coal, Appalachian studies, sociology, that's what I was trained in, women's and gender studies. Uh, and then when I retired, uh, I moved back to Charleston and became a board member of the Mine Wars Museum uh, in 2018. And could you you talk about what black lung disease is and, and how people get it? Sure. Um, black lung is a chronic and ultimately fatal respiratory disease that coal miners get from inhaling coal dust uh, in the workplace. Above ground miners can get black lung, but certainly <clears throat> those who work underground tend to get it at higher rates. Um, and we've seen a real increase in the last few decades um, of the in the number the percent of minors who are um, contracting the disease and especially those who are getting the most advanced and debilitating form of it um, and while the technical explanation of that involves the changing composition of coal mine dust which increasingly has silica in it um, i would argue that it's also a function of the destruction of miners power in the workplace um, related to the offensive against the mine and mine workers that started in the 1980s. So black lung has been around for centuries since coal has been mined, but its existence was denied for many, many decades by the medical profession in the United States. And so it really required miners and their families and their allies, their intervention to force the recognition of black lung as a compensable work-related disease. Well, I think the uh, rebellion of, of the workers uh, leads us to the next question of what were the mine wars and why did it happen? So the mine wars were a period of about two decades at the beginning of the 20th century when miners fought uh, the coal operators who were determined uh, not to allow the union into southern West Virginia. Uh, they fought... Um, in a series of battles, some of them uh, with arms and violence, uh, and um, 
eventually culminated in the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921, which is probably the most famous episode in the Mine Wars, um, which I'll say a little bit more about in a minute. But let me just note that the context for this um, was the company town system where the great majority of coal miners in West Virginia lived in towns where not just the workplace was owned um, <clears throat> excuse me, by the coal operators, but the entire infrastructure of the town. So um, all the housing is owned by the coal company, the store is owned by the coal company. You get paid in scrip, which is a currency that you can't use anywhere else except at that company store and in that town. Um, the law enforcement is controlled by the coal company. Uh, access to the town in some cases via railroads and roads uh, can be controlled by the coal company. So it's really kind of this total system, uh, incredibly uh, repressive and anti-democratic. And as bad as the working conditions were in many mines uh, in terms of the danger, inadequate ventilation and so on, it was actually these repressive features of town life, the profound lack of democracy um, that really rankled most miners uh, the most and, and precipitated um, this continued effort to gain unionization for the big devil white, uh, not only in the workplace, but in the larger uh, town. So the mine work started around 1902. Um, there were fierce battles uh, about 10 years later on Paint Creek and Cabin Creek, which lie to the east of Charleston, state capital, in about the middle of the state. Um, and then, as you mentioned in the introduction in 1920, there was a battle in Maitland, which is in Mingo County, and it's also where the mine working is located, when the private mine guards from the Baldwin Salt Detective Agency arrived in town to evict miners who were on strike. And unusual, very unusual for this area and time, the local police chief in Hatfield was actually a supporter of the union. And in the confrontation that followed, um, there was gunfire, and several of the detectives were killed, as were the miners. Um, later, Hatfield and his deputy were uh, attacked on the steps of the McDowell County Courthouse in Jason County um, and murdered in cold blood. Uh, they were unarmed. Um, during the same period of time, a black miner uh, who was on strike was, um, his name was Alex Breedlove, uh, was killed by a member of the state police. Uh, and so miners, this was enough. This was more than enough. It was like, okay, we've had it. <laughs> so miners who had managed to unionize during the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike, um, so a little bit to the north of Mingo County, Nassau County, Logan County, in the southernmost part of West Virginia, they decided that they would, after the governor rejected their demands to end the mine guard system, the private system of supposed law enforcement, um, they decided to march south uh, into Mingo County where miners were on strike. But to get there, they had to cross through Logan County which was a stronghold of anti-unionism controlled by the sheriff, John Chapin, uh, whose salary was paid in part by the coal operators. And uh, so miners from 10,000, 15,000, the estimate varies, um, amassed uh, in Marmette outside of Charleston and then marched south 
uh, into Logan County, where at the summit of Blair Mountain, which is about a 20 mile long ridge line, they met Chasen and his forces, the so-called Logan Defenders, and battled for five days. Um, and were only, uh, the battle was only ended with the arrival of US Army troops. Um, and it was not because the troops began firing on miners, but because miners, many were veterans of World War I, and they were unwilling uh, to fight fellow soldiers. Uh, and so they laid down their weapons. Yeah, this history is completely buried. I have been very much interested in history, world history, U.S. history. I studied political science and public policy, and I only became aware of this battle in the last few years. And I had the privilege last year to travel for the 100-year anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain in uh, Charleston, into Matewan, and was able to actually get to Matewan. And it, it was a, yeah, it, it's beautiful, beautiful area right on the border of Kentucky and the southwestern <laughs> part of, of West Virginia, some of the most beautiful country in, in this in this country and in, in, in the world. And it, it felt it for me, it was almost like a, a, a mecca for for labor um, acknowledgement of the struggles that have happened to give us the rights that we have currently within labor. And I believe the the battle actually set back a lot of the union efforts for for 10 20 years but the 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 actual united mine workers had grew much stronger in in being able to organize from that as well and also there was a very large strategic component as I understand it where that area could produce an, enough coal it was ununionized area and it could produce enough coal if all the other areas all the other unions went on strike if this area kept producing coal, they could last outlast a strike as well. So it was very strategic to also unionize this area as well. Um, so could you talk about why you wanted to create the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum and uh, to, to bring about this, this history to a larger consciousness? And, um, and, and what are some of the past efforts that have tried to suppress the, the Mine Wars history? Sure. So let me mention something that I think is a very important part of the reason why this history has been suppressed first, and which I failed to mention in talking about um, the mine wars. And that is that this was an interracial, interethnic, that is involving immigrants and people of different languages, struggle. Um, the solidarity was really, really quite remarkable. When you think about what was going on in the period after World War One. Um, you know, there's a big strike wave in 1919, but we also get the Tulsa massacre, race massacre, and you get, um, you know, lynching, anti-immigrant nativism. It's a period of tremendous racism. Um, so that miners were able to pull this off, this kind of solidarity is really an extraordinary um, legacy. Very important, obviously, today. So, um, so I think that in addition to the fact, this is, of course, you know, this huge labor uprising, as you mentioned, the largest armed <clears throat> labor uprising uh, since the Civil War, possibly in US history. But in any case, um, the effort to suppress it really began, Chuck Keeney would argue, and I know you've had him on this podcast, he has a great book on the road to Blair Mountain, um, which is about the effort to preserve this battlefield. Um, the effort to suppress this history really began during the Battle of Blair Mountain when uh, 
Chafin, the sheriff of Logan County, the very fiercely anti-union jail reporters, <clears throat> and then monitored the dispatches to make sure that they were not, um, you know, pro-union or promoting the miners' cause. And um, Chuck uh, argues that that's really the beginning of the effort to suppress mine wars history that continued then in the form of, um, you know, the governor in the 30s uh, requiring that the New Deal um, Works Progress Administration or WPA, which were commissioning uh, state histories in each state that the one done for West Virginia not include the mine wars or the labor struggle. Uh, it has been absent from the curriculum in public schools in West Virginia. So there's been this kind of erasure uh, of the story of the mine wars in terms of public recognition and, and um, public education. That's been overt and direct, but I also want, want to mention a more subtle consequence of this offensive against the union that happened in the 1980s, which was when A.C. Massey and Don Blankenship really moved um, violently to extirpate throughout the union from southern West Virginia um, and uh, was ultimately successful, uh, unfortunately, so that to this day, or today, you know, uh, less than 10 percent of miners working in southern West Virginia are actually you know, the number. Um, the offensive really was, you know, grossly successful, unfortunately. So, and what that enabled then in the aftermath was for the coal operators, West Virginia Coal Association and other mine owners to really shift the narrative politically in the state away from a kind of labor um, focus or, you know, class-focused uh, discourse about, you know, we workers need to stand together and we need to promote certain forms of legislation and so forth towards a kind of enlistment of minors and their families into joining this, you know, defending army against the war on coal. So it became the kind of political shape of the state became one of um, a war against outsiders who were trying to destroy the coal industry, outsiders being, of course, the Environmental Protection Agency and the Obama administration in which they were under some, some, some cases of racism um, in this um, rhetoric about how, oh no, you know, we're, we're not the enemy, let's not even talk about class struggle. Uh, it's those outsiders, that outside force. And so there was this kind of um, silencing of class and class struggle um, that really persists to this day, um, unfortunately. And uh, and so at the same time, though, we can't say that it's been erased from memory. It certainly has. I mean, in 2018, when the teachers went on strike in West Virginia, they wore many of them red bandanas, um, which were the symbol that miners used in 1921 in the March on Blair Mountains that signify their solidarity and their support for the union cause. So, um, and the teachers strike again in Mingo County, which were mainline located. So, you know, as much as there's an effort to suppress or even erase, it hasn't been possible to do that totally by any means. And this is, of course, in part where the mind comes in to 
you know, our conviction is that we not only need to preserve this history, we really need to lift it up as an incredibly important legacy for workers and their allies all over this country. And as a source of pride for people in Southern West Virginia, um, this, is a, this is a tremendous contribution <laughs> to the labor movement and a real inspiration. So the museum, um, as you saw, uh, has a terrific uh, set of exhibits. We're not talking some dusty little background with some random memorabilia. I mean, it's really a, a top-notch um, series of exhibits about coal camp life, about life in tent colonies, about the Battle of Maitland. The, the location of the museum is literally across the street from where the battle occurred. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Strip, um, the, um, some of the weapons and shell casings and so forth that were used in the Battle of Paramount. Um, lots of very informative and interesting um, artifacts and visual uh, video recordings photographs and so forth. So um, the museum itself, I think, is a great destination. And as you mentioned, just getting there is really it's a great experience, it's a beautiful area. Um, and it's also um, a very educational drive. You know, if you've never been in other West Virginia or in Kentucky, some of the coal fields, you know, two lane roads, you can see old company stores across the railroad tracks all the time, of course the coal is going out on. Um, and uh, you're seeing, you know, the coal camp that still exists there. So um, we also do a lot of public programming um, and that includes, you know, everything from book signings and film screenings to a strike supper we held a few years ago where we had um, the food ways represented of the different groups who were um, living in the coal camp during the mine wars. Um, that was a literally not just sold out and standing alone, it was an overflow crowd. Um, so, and then as you described, the centennial of the Blattler Mountains this last year drew some 3,000 people to a whole series of events um, around uh, West Virginia and actually surrounding states. So, um, so those kinds of public programs that uh, take the museum beyond its four walls, uh, I think, are really important. Um, that includes, as you mentioned, the curriculum in public schools. Uh, it also includes our most recent project, which is to raise some money. This is a multi-year, multi-dollar <laughs> project um, to memorialize and provide historical interpretation of key sites along the Miners March route from Marmette to Blair Mountain. And so we have managed so far to develop monuments at Marmette beginning point and Sharpless, which is close to the end point of the march. Um, and those will be unveiled Labor Day weekend this year. Um, but uh, we really want to build out the march route in other ways with other historical uh, interpretive materials, Clio apps, um, online materials, and so on. So I urge listeners to go to wbmindworth.org. <laughs> And you can see um, a lot more about the museum and what we're And get excited about our history. And watch Mate One is a great movie by John Sales as well to really kind of just get your feet wet and then learn more about it. What's been the process of trying to get more curriculum on the mine wars uh, with both state schools and 
I'm not even sure what the process would be to try to get it into a national curriculum. But what we've done so far is to develop curriculum in um, cooperation with teachers, obviously sympathetic teachers in Mango County and adjacent counties in Southern West Virginia. We have a whole teacher advisory committee um, that has helped us develop curricula for, I think, fifth, eighth, and 11th grade. That might be, might be off on some of those, but anyway. And they're available on our website. So we have not, at this point, pushed to um, get it officially uh, required as part of the, you know, learning or whatever at the state level, but it has been more a matter of getting the word out among teachers who adopt it and who also, regardless of what they do with, um, you know, what we have in terms of curricular offering, we really encourage them to bring their classrooms to the museum too. So we have a lot of school children coming through the museum, which is just very exciting to see, and they get very excited about this history. That's awesome. That's awesome. So what are some of the lessons from the mind wars for today that you've taken away? Well, um, I think, you know, the most, the most um, obvious that, that it still bears repeating is the importance of interracial, interethnic solidarity, and also um, the fact that in this context of an all-male workforce um, where so much of the attention, the history-telling, story-making, and so forth focus upon minors, um, I think it's really important not to neglect the fact that this strike and this march did not happen without a lot of women who <laughs> yeah. were behind the scenes. They were organizing the food. They were providing, you know, makeshifts medical care in little clinics. There were nurses with headbands marching in W who were up in the marchers. Um, and I think a lesson from that is that, you know, in any strike, uh, you don't succeed um, without the support of women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. an all-male workforce like this, uh, it's, you know, women are, are holding down the family and checking the, the money that you do have and so on. So that's very, important lesson. I think the other lesson um, that I would mention, which unfortunately remains true to this day, is the fact that if you cut the whole architecture of government arrayed against you, I'm talking the courts, law enforcement now, though it didn't exist at the time, the National Labor Relations Board, um, it is really hard to win. Now you can still win, and we are seeing that happening all over the country very exciting moment in terms of the resurgence of the labor movement, but um, we got a lot of work to do in terms of pushing uh, a much more pro-labor environment uh, generally, because in places like West Virginia, as we saw in the 1980s, you know, it was just astonishing to me that it was possible for 18 Nazi to break legal in Southern West Virginia. I mean, the legacy of unionism has been so strong there. People are so aware of the blood that was shed and the battles that were fought for Massey to be able to break that. That was entirely dependent though, on the fact that the state police were protecting convoys, gas coal. They were limited in the size of their picket lines. There were all kinds of restraining orders against the union and fines and so on. And so um, when you're living in that kind of atmosphere, it's real hard to get in. Um, I just read yesterday, actually, that the District 10 of the National Labor Relations Board 
is um, seeking to find the United Mine Workers in the context of their more than a year-long strike now in northern Alabama. Warrior Met Toll, yeah, it's yeah. insane. Absolutely yeah. insane. They want to levy fine, basically, of over $13 million for Warrior Met loss. I mean, hello, what is the strike about? Yeah, to exactly. Incur losses on the part of the employer. And so, um, I mean, that's just another example of the, unfortunately, you know, the power of the kind of anti-unionism um, that that is like baked in right now in some of our national um, laws and practices and so on, court rulings. Yeah. The, the fight always remains. And I do want to just uh, ask you one other question on the immigrant working class labor that was going on. So you had the racial issues as well, but there were a lot of immigrants in these coal mines that couldn't speak English as well that the mine bosses would use to divide up the workplace. We're still seeing these echoes today. It's a, it's the same playbook that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a um, one coal operator who quite explicitly said that you need a judicious mixture, as he put it, of, you know, native white mountaineers, uh, black workers from the South, generally the Jim Crow South, uh, and, and immigrant workers in order to maintain divisions. Housing tended to be segregated along those lines. So the effort was to um, divide a very intentional, very intentional effort to divide workers along the lines of, you know, immigration status, uh, language, and race. Um, and again, in a context of real racist and nativist um, attitudes across the country as a whole. So it's really, it's really remarkable that um, they were able to overcome that, which also, you know, this is a kind of thinking back on the lessons of Mine wars and Blair Mountain and so on. Um, what, there are many reasons why I think miners were able to override that effort at decision. Um, and one of them certainly has to do with this dense context of coal camps, where, you know, what sociologists call a density of acquaintanceship. You see other people, you know, you work with them underground, you see them in the company store. Um, you share the conditions of, you know, prospect of being fired if you support the union or being jailed, blacklisted, evicted from your home. Miners live in integrated tent colonies, you know, when they were um, fired and evicted. And so um, you have this kind of commonality in place that I think is is so important and so different from the context today where, you know, workers are commuting from hither and yon and they're working different schedules and um, don't have anything akin to that kind of um, place-based solidarity potential. And yet, um, or, or because of that, you have these, I think, brilliant organizing strategies like we saw with the Amazon workers on Staten Island where you know, um, Chris Malls and others are setting it. It's bus stop organizing. You know, you figure out a place where people converge and where you can build kind of community and solidarity and you have food and, you know, it just, it acknowledges the importance of that kind of um, community and relationality to union organizing. Um, and yeah, 
perhaps that's another lesson, which is that workers organize themselves. You know? yeah. I mean, that happened in the mine wars. It wasn't that UMW <clears throat> was saying, oh, I've got to march on Blair Mountain. Uh-uh. No. <laughs> no, and, and um, to put everything on the line as well. Like yeah. to put, put your, your daily bread, unable to feed your family if you lose the job, but it's more willing to fight. So where do you find inspiration and hope? Oh, gosh. Well, I find hope in this history. I mean, it's a remarkable story, but I also find inspiration and hope in what younger workers are doing today. I mean, there is such a, um, an upsurge in labor uh, activism and, um, you know, the, the work that's going on to organize and Starbucks and Amazon, but also in places like, you know, I was reading the other day about editors at publishing houses are organizing, architects in New York City are organizing. I mean, and I think part of part of what's happening is that we're seeing a, a kind of cultural sea change in how especially younger generations think about work. It's like, uh, okay, yeah, I gotta have a job to pay my bills, but this is not the center of my life. I will not be controlled. <laughs> In the way that this boss wants to do, uh-uh, that dog don't hunt. You know, we we want more to life than work. Um, and you know, I see that in my own children. I mean, I have, I think that's very positive. So, how can people support the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum? Oh, please go to wbmindwars.org and become a member. That is the backbone of our financial stability. You know, we can get a grant here and there, but those foundations are fickle. It is you all who believe in this work who will make it possible for us to continue and expand and really get this story, these stories out. So um, membership, $5 a month is the baseline. Join us. We'd love it. Thank you so much. Well, I, I think as we're approaching uh, the U.S. Labor Day, I think everyone should go to the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, take out some money, maybe five, 10, 20, 50, $100,000, whatever you have, give it to the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, learn more about our labor history, support labor history, labor journalism, and make the pilgrimage to Matewan. And Barbara Ellen Smith, thank you so much for your time and everything you're doing. Thank you, Evan. Thanks so much. Ooh.